The Curmudgeon Rock Report. Curmudgeon rhymes with bludgeon. Rock gods do it right. So do rock nerds. We're here for The Rock. 1965, 2021, doesn't matter. Crude, rude, yet somehow sophisticated. Welcome. Enjoy the show. Lo and behold, we've made it to episode 10, which from our research puts us uh, well ahead of the game as far as podcasts. Uh, We're survivors. We may only have 10 real fans so far, but uh, we are survivors and we're here and we are making a dent in the Rock Nerd podcast uh, debates. Uh, We're putting a lot of stuff out there, and uh, yes, we are uh, doing it crankily and uh, occasionally tongue-in-cheek, but we are uh, having fun and uh, trying to make a serious uh, entry uh, into this space. So anyway, my name is Christopher O'Connor, and uh, my partner in this venture, as always, uh, chiming in from Guangzhou, South Korea, is Arturo Andrade. Uh, hello, Arturo. Uh, what do you got for us this week? I've got a lot, and so do you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, things are well. You know, it's hot as hell. Oh, it's starting to get hot as hell here in Korea, summer. Um, yeah, same here. Yeah. And speaking of, you know, feeling uh, feeling hot, uh, I, I, think, I think we all felt a little warm after the last episode because of a mistake that we uh, <laughs> we realized later on. Uh, Chris, in your segment about Blind Melon in the uh, recommendations from The Vault, uh, great recommendation. I- I'm a fan of that Blind Melon album. But you referred to their guitarists as their guitarist as uh, his name is Rogers Stevens. You referred to him as Rogers Nelson, otherwise known as Prince. <laughs> yes, and and I firmly uh, blame Prince for that mistake. Uh, he's the most famous Rogers. Uh, Rogers uh, Nelson, because of that, is baked into the brain. And so, yes, I did slip into the the lazy uh, 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 recall. And uh, yes, uh, Roger Stevens, who is a very good guitarist and worthy of some praise. And who knows, maybe this gets back to him. But I basically called him Rogers Nelson. Uh, and so while Roger Stevens is a very accomplished guitarist, he ain't that accomplished. Right. Uh, let's just put it this way. Rogers Nelson blows Roger Stevens off the face of the earth. So we wanted to at least mark that. And uh, that was an egg on face moment. Uh, but uh, this is why uh, this podcast is a continuum. the parallel universe uh we're not we're not just unidentified flying objects fly but also bands and artists whose music if this was a time where good music and good rock and roll still made the radio and we're in pre uh, clear channel uh live nation days actually made the radio we we could celebrate 
But since they don't get that treatment in this universe, Arturo and I uh, travel over into the eighth dimension at least and uh, uh, examine uh, albums from these artists that uh, we uh, recommend and we like and we think that you should too. Or or how we just created the universe ourselves. Yeah, uh, that's, yeah, exactly. You know, if you don't like this universe, make your own. Uh, And uh, more and more in this world, that's not a bad idea. So uh, as usual, Arturo uh, will start uh, this foray, put on his spacesuit, and tell us what he's got. Yeah, um, well, if, 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 if rock radio were still a thing, this band would have a couple of songs on it already. They're a British band called Shame. And uh, I'm talking about their their uh, second album that came out in January. Um, and I've been listening to it for a while, but now I've decided to talk about it on the podcast. And their second album is called Drunk Tank Pink. Now, this band, hailing from South London, uh, this band's debut album from 2018, Songs of Praise, was a pretty entertaining, if slightly underwhelming take on the Happy Mondays, you know, funky dance rock, only with heavier guitars. And the Mondays influence was even more pronounced in singer Charlie Steen's Sean Ryder-esque, surreal social commentary raps. However, their second album is a huge leap forward for the band's development of a more distinct and original sound. Um, According to AllMusic.com's Heather Ferris, after their debut album became a critical success, guitarist Sean Coyle Smith's listening habits started delving into Nigerian Afrobeat and talking heads. Um, the result is a bigger, wider, thicker post-punk sound that resembles a heavier, angrier, more angular, and even more politically charged take on Parquet Quartz's brand of indie rock and art funk. Uh, standout tracks include the super tense funk workout of the single Nigel Hitter, the schizophrenic Born in Luton, which alternates between herky-jerky block party gone math rock and mid-tempo grinding post-punk sludge rock, and the hyperkinetic March Day, which wouldn't sound out of place at all on any of the Falls records from the late 1970s. So, yeah, highly, not super highly, because the album does have its blips. It's got a few too many slow songs on them. But the good stuff is really good. So I recommend Shane's Drunk Tank Pink. Now, let's talk about St. Vincent. Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of our listeners are probably familiar by now with, uh, with uh, St. Vincent. Uh, St. Vincent is the uh, gnome uh, diplom uh, of uh, Annie Clark. And uh, uh, she uh, has done some of the best uh, and most interesting uh, records uh, uh, since, let's go back to the beginning of the 2010s. And she's just had a streak of really uh, interesting, really dark, uh, really adventurous uh, records where she kind of shows off her chops. Particularly, not only particularly her last two, you know. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, Mass Education was pretty much her, uh, uh, or Mass Eduction, yeah. uh, I get that wrong. Uh, that sort of was her uh, her breakout, uh, earned her a Grammy. 
actually uh, had a uh, collaboration with Dua Lipa on that, right. which, you know, I would have never uh, called in a million years that uh, St. Vincent would be working on that. Uh, I guess before then, I think most people were introduced to her when Nirvana went in the uh, Hall of uh, Fame. Uh, she uh, participated in in that. That the uh, the shtick there was uh, Novoselic and Grohl and uh, Pat Smear when they went to play. They had all female uh, lead singers uh, uh, do their uh, do the songs. And uh, if memory serves, Saint Vincent did uh, did Lithium, yeah. uh, which was fascinating um, to to see her in that. And I'm like, okay, yeah, she's a rock star. Yeah. And, and so from there, I caught, I caught onto her. Uh, and, you know, she also is uh, somebody that wears her influences on her sleeve, uh, albeit in different ways. Uh, there's always been some Bowie there. Uh, obviously, Talking Heads is, a, uh, is an influence. I think her album with David Byrne mm-hmm. is a little bit of a giveaway <laughs> uh, on that front. But so now she's back. And I guess uh, with this album, it's called Daddy's Home. It actually literally was released five days before we're recording uh, this podcast. So it's uh, fre- fresh off the mint, uh, so to speak. And I guess you can say that she's uh, playing it um, straight or straighter uh, than perhaps she ever has, although in this case defined straight. Um, I would say that this is, uh, in some ways, it's a blue-eyed white chick soul record. In some respects, there's a lot of uh, uh, not just introspection because you expect that from her, but there's uh, more of a more of a light to go uh, with the dark. Um, I'd say it's a woozy record, uh, and but in the meantime, it's it's woozy, it's soulful, it uh, is very heavy on the keys, and the guitar while it's there is very subtle uh, and uh, is. Uh, works as a, uh, as it really kind of plays off the keyboards and the vocals. Uh, there's, uh, harmonies. However, it's not all overdubs. Uh, she does have, uh, a few, uh, guest, uh, uh, singers, uh, in the background and, uh, really the concept of this record, uh, her, uh, father, Annie Clark's father, uh, spent some time about 12 years in prison uh, for some uh, white collar uh, fraudulent uh, malfeasance, and so this is a little bit of a um, bittersweet, uh, Daddy, I love you, but it's been a it's been a really tough road. Yeah, and so there's um, uh, the uh, the title song, uh, Daddy's Home, where there's this oddly uh, sweet uh, or you know kind of reverent. Uh, uh, tribute to her, her father in some ways where she, uh, the, uh, the opening lyric is I signed autographs in the visitation room waiting for you the last time in the five Oh two. Uh, so makes it very clear <laughs> that she's, uh, that she's in a prison. And, uh, the story I read about this is she signed the autograph on the back of a receipt. So, uh, makes it more, more darkly funny. And so I guess the, uh, the message of uh, that song is, well, you did time. Well, I did time too. And when we're so, just talking about doing time, just talking about doing time as your celebrity. And yeah. that's, that's, that's what, that's one of the things I want to get to about um, 
this album. It's like, um, her real breakthrough really was her self-titled album in 2014, right after yes. right after the David Byrne collab. That, Very good. That's record. the one that that's one of the best albums of the decade. That's the one because I'm not a big fan of her early stuff. Um, but I think with the self-titled album, she like let go of the shackles and she stopped doing all this, you know, you know, Disney soundtrack musical crap that she was doing in her early records. And she started, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with being funky. There's nothing wrong with having melodies and pop hooks. And she let that all out on the on the on the on the self-titled album. And then yeah. seeing the, the progression from that to mass uh, mass seduction, which lyrically worked on. They were worked on two levels. It was A, her dealing with her fame and having a hard time with it, and B, dealing with a really dysfunctional relationship. <laughs> yeah, really dysfunctional yeah. relationship, and then, uh, as it turns yeah, out. Yeah, and then this yeah. album is kind of like her taking well, – works on two levels. Her taking a deep breath and being at home with her fame and not having that relationship anymore – and of course, you know, like you said, um, reconciling uh, with her father. Uh, yeah, now that's now that's a good point. That I wouldn't necessarily call this a happy record, yeah. but it's it's a relieved record. It's a sigh. And it's a sigh. It's, it's yes. Like, oh, all right, now I'm yeah. getting older. I'm growing up. I'm reconciling with my dad. Yes, I'm a celebrity. I can deal with it. Let's move on. All right. So now. Let us talk about today's episode, one that I'm really personally looking forward to. All right. So for Chris and I, this is our 10th episode, which is somewhat of a milestone for this fledgling podcast. And since our podcast is named after a Nirvana song, namely Curmudgeon, the B-side to the single Lithium, we would like to commemorate this grand event by presenting a Nirvana-centric episode. However, it will not be in the way most people would expect. Let me explain. When Nirvana released their second album, Nevermind, in September of 1991, it altered the landscape of rock music forever. That's been written about a hundred times. Everyone knows that. And the rock sound that had been considered underground, alternative and indie, for the previous 10 years, all of a sudden became mainstream and culturally significant, with millions of young rock fans being turned on to bands and artists they'd never heard of before, thanks to their influence on and their endorsements from the members of Nirvana themselves. It didn't hurt that Nirvana themselves were a transcendently brilliant and innovative band that weaved these previously uncommercial influences into an appealing and listener-friendly whole while maintaining an esoteric dark edge and presenting it all with intelligent, poetic, timeless, and emotionally riveting songwriting. However, there is another side to the alternative rock revolution that Nirvana kickstarted, and this regards the already established bands slash artists whose careers were either irrevocably changed or flat out destroyed by the grunge alternative indie tidal wave. So on this episode, Chris and I are going to run down the body count of bands and artists whose careers, and in some cases legacies, were either never the same after Nirvana or just wiped out and made irrelevant. And in most of these cases, it's a damn good thing too. 
because let's face it, most of these bands that we're going to present flat out suck monkey balls. Chris? Uh, well, well, that is about as uh, uh, direct an assessment that we'll, we'll get. Uh, if uh, these bands evoke monkey balls, uh, then, uh, well, I don't know. Monkey balls can be a good thing depending on uh, just how dumb and fun dumb. But in a lot of cases here, we're not talking fun dumb. So uh, preparing uh, for this episode, uh, what it did is it reminded me of just how important MTV was back then. Yeah. Uh, 30 years ago in sort of setting and uh, gatekeeping the zeitgeist uh, at any given moment. Uh, you know, they, uh, they would define the turns in uh, what was on the front burner. And, uh, and then they would just push the hell out of uh, the forerunners and the, uh, and, and the, the followers and the, uh, and the posers. And uh, I just want to make it clear that uh, Arturo set this episode up as sort of these victims of Nirvana. We're not just picking on hair metal here. Yeah. Okay. So I want to make that clear. But a lot of this does have to do with hard rock metal, which which in the 80s went in a couple of uh, different directions. There was the underground, uh, which actually in 1991 became mainstream. And that's a point that uh, I'll make uh, myself uh, later on uh, in this episode. But let's contextualize 1991 uh, in terms of uh, rock and roll. And again, a lot of this is the hair metal kind of stuff that's uh, that's front burner. So you've got Ozzy's No More Tears uh, album, which you know is still his most popular to date. And uh, a couple of songs from that that are, have become classic rock staples. Uh, now, at this point, Poison put out a live album. Uh, Motley Crue and Rat released retrospective comps. Uh, and so there's all there's already this knowledge that maybe we're at the end of uh, we're coming to the end of what was uh, in the 80s. So this is already being set up. The ha- but hairspray the- gold rush. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The hair, the hairspray gold rush. Yes. Uh, now, White Lion was still a thing at this point. And uh, I got the hand at the White Lion. They at least were very self-aware. Their uh, album from this year is called Main Attraction with Main spelled M-A-N-E. <laughs> uh, so, oh, they're uh, so clever. Yep. And then uh, L- L.A. Guns had an album called Hollywood Vampires. Uh, so, so again, That's so terrible. it looks like we're, we're sort of at the end of a uh, – we're coming to the end of something anyway, which is still front burner on MTV, mind you. Now, yeah. you know, Ozzy had the best year. Uh, so then there's a few other things that are going on here. Freddie Mercury dies in November. And so, you know, kind of the, the godfather of a lot of this, uh, a, a lot of this genre in some ways, uh, dies, uh, you get, uh, CC DeVille. Fittingly yeah. enough, which is sad to say, but yeah, you know, if Freddie dies just as hair metal dies and let's face it, Queen, Queen and Kiss are the ones who I think are the two that really, you know, inspired hair metal in a lot of ways, even though Queen were like, oh, yeah. Queen were like and, 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 by the length of yeah. five football fields better than all those bands. <laughs> right. And then obviously we have to give credit to Motley Crue and Bon Jovi. And for, Van Halen. For, for, <laughs> yeah, and Van Halen. Although, I'm, uh, I, well, we'll we'll talk about Van Halen later yeah. in the episode. But uh, I have some thoughts about that. Uh, but again, C.C. DeVille. So again, 1991, C.C. DeVille uh, gets himself fired live on the air <laughs> by being way... By being wasted, this is from Poison. Uh, live on the air, he decides not to play what uh, Brett Michaels wants to play, and 
uh, gets himself fired from there. Uh, and, you know, he was an asshole, which is quite an accomplishment being in the same band as Brett Michaels. <laughs> uh, so, and now uh, also Steve Clark uh, of Def Leppard, who was a very good songwriter, he drinks himself to death this year. So that sets up some stuff to come. And so, very good songwriter in quotation marks. Right. Yeah. Well, but at the same time, I mean, come on. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, you can't uh, goof on hysteria too much. I, I mean, can. That, you know, that, <laughs> and I will. That record, <laughs> I'm sure you will. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if effectively, I mean, that, you know, that record was a, was a tsunami of uh, success. So like I said, so we're at a pivot point anyway. And now in that fall, uh, there's another band, which we will cover that just has a huge blowout. MTV is loving them every day. They are, uh, all over the place. They're sprawled. They are the biggest band in the world. And then Nirvana comes along. Michael Jackson told you he was bad, and despite a legendarily corny video, he made you believe it. Prince called himself a sexy MF, and while you perhaps rolled your eyes at that, there was no doubt he thought it was true. Over the last few episodes, Arturo and I have established that we take opposite sides on a Prince versus Michael debate, and we adamantly defend our positions. He's the Prince guy. I'm the Michael Jackson guy. Where do you fall along this spectrum? Let us know. And drop us a line at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com today. So Nirvana comes along in uh, late uh, 1991 uh, and eventually changes everything. And it creates an undertow that swallowed a whole lot of bands uh, for better or for worse. uh, Mostly for for better. Mo- yeah, mo- mostly for better, but I, I do have some uh, some opinions of, of this band where I'm not exactly celebrating their demise. Uh, I'm not necessarily lamenting it, but, you know, who knows what could have happened if, if it wasn't for uh, the grunge and authenticity uh, rush. So on that note, uh, Arturo, uh, who would you put at number 10 on this list of the victims of Nirvana? Yeah, Death by Nirvana and the body count, the ensuing body count. The first band on this list is Queensryche. Now, I will admit, it's odd to start off a list of casualties of the alternative rock revolution with a band that was, at one time, one of the leading bands of the alternative and progressive metal scene. Nevertheless, it's impossible to ignore the fact that this band's commercial fortunes and prospects were quickly flushed down the toilet after the period of 1991 to 93, when Nirvana and Pearl Jam, let's not forget them, they're pretty important in the story too, when Nirvana and Pearl Jam rocked the rock landscape, at least in the U.S., with a force unseen since the 1960s. Ironically enough, Queensryche emerged from the Seattle area, Bellevue, Washington, to be exact, in the mid-1980s with a string of albums featuring sophisticated, dense, dark, almost operatic due to lead singer's uh, lead singer Jeff Tate's uncanny vocal range, uh, that kind of heavy metal that placed them alongside Dream Theater in the forefront of the emerging subgenre known as prog metal, progressive metal, right? Their critical breakthrough and grand metal statement was their 1988 concept album, Operation Mind Crime. And around this time, they started to get some airplay on rock radio. 
Then came the big crossover hit album, 1990s Empire, which featured a more streamlined, pared-back version of their patented complex prog metal with simpler arrangements and over-the-top melodies and hooks. In early 1991, they hit the mainstream big time with their orchestral power ballad, Silent Lucidity, which dominated rock radio and went as far as number nine in the Billboard pop charts. Now, due to touring burnout and personal issues various members of the band were having, they took an extended break and a real long time coming up with a follow-up to Empire. They finally did so in autumn of 1994 with Promised Land. The album debuted at number three in the Billboard album charts, then soon plummeted out of sight without any hit singles, not even on rock radio. It's at this point that the obvious must be stated. You know, it isn't an overstatement to say rock music went through massive changes from 1991 through 94, with not just hair metal, but other subgenres of rock and pop, of the rock and pop spectrum that were greatly affected by the alternative grunge monsoon. Unfortunately for Queensryche, their brand of conceptual progressive metal was deemed passe and corny by the rock audience at large. And ever since then, they've been a mid-level band with a small but devoted cult following. It must also be said that something else aside from Nirvana happened, especially in the 1993-94 period, leading up to Queensryche's failed follow-up to Empire. A certain band from Los Angeles called Tool emerged with their 1993 debut album Undertow, and quicker than a Rush-inspired time signature change, Tool reinvented progressive metal with a darkness, a heaviness, and a sinister edge that their forebears just could not possibly compete with. So first, alternative slash grunge made Queensryche unhip and uncool. Then Tool came along within Queensryche's own, sub, own subgenre and made them irrelevant. Poor Queensryche. Chris? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely agree. Poor, poor Queensryche. Uh, look, I really liked Empire uh, as a kid. And again, remember, I was a, a nerdy 15-year-old uh, at the time. And so Empire, uh, which was a pop record uh, of all things, I think what it was is Operation Mindcrime, like you said, is, is a magnum opus to that uh, uh prog metal, almost emo-ish concept. You know, everybody was trying to out-concept uh, everyone yeah. at that time. And, uh, you know, Dream, Dream Theater takes the cake because, you know, nobody could out-drum uh, Steve Portnoy. I mean, they had Steve Portnoy, so they always get the uh, the love. But Queensryche, you know, again, you know, they, they kind of struck there and they set themselves up for a mainstream breakthrough. And <laughs> they decided, yeah, well, basically, no, but they really had the mainstream breakthrough. But what to make the mainstream breakthrough, they made a mainstream breakthrough album. Yeah. Uh, it, it definitely was a swinging for the fences record. I mean, the, uh, the title song, uh, was, was orthodox, uh, real metal, not the hair metal, but it was, it was more poppy, obviously silent lucidity, which was in hugely heavy, uh, rotation, uh, in, uh, 1991 on MTV. Uh, we still remember the uh, video of, uh, Jeff Tate, uh, with the long hair and the, the uh, glistening earrings looking super serious against a, uh, a really cheesy uh, night star moon uh, background. Yeah. Uh, 
so uh, in retrospect, it was funny, but I love the song. Uh, but yeah, it did. So what happened? What happened here? Uh, so yeah, the uh, the Nirvana thing comes along, and as Arturo says, Tool comes along. Really, nineteen. Well, 92, but they really kind of break through in the mainstream in early 93, ironically, with their most grunge song, which is Sober, yeah. uh, and, and Prison Sex. And so it was kind of like if it wasn't for uh, grunge's uh, uh, gnarliness and uh, authenticity and honesty, Tool would have never broken through and we never would have, they never would have been really allowed to make Anima, which yeah. is just, you know, way more out there. Yeah. Uh, but but that's an aside. Uh, with Queensryche, uh, it's interesting. So they are just about to go huge and they become uh, rock stars. And, you know, they were featured on the video music awards in 1991. And, and so they, you know, the world was kind of their oyster and they really could have uh, hit that home run in 1994 or 1993, let's say. Uh, but then Nirvana comes along and then, yeah, like you said, that, you know, the, uh, the, the super serious, uh, uh, sort of singery, uh, muso, uh, prog metal thing, uh, goes away and the crunchier stuff, uh, takes over. And, uh, you know, one, uh, another thing we'll get into, uh, down this list too, is that, uh, 1992 and 1993 were a lousy time for a metal band of any kind, or really a hard rock band of any kind to take a, a hiatus Yeah, because by the time they come back out of the cave, everything has changed and nobody cares about what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, okay. So you want to stay true to yourself. And I think Queensryche figured this out really quick because they, I believe they, uh, started having problems. They didn't have any personnel changes yet, uh, during that, but then they do promised land with the song IMI, which I loved, uh, but it definitely was not mainstream. So they kind of went back to what they knew. I'm going to combine, uh, artists uh, here. So, uh, Eight, 1989, 90, and 91 was really the most fertile period for what I'll call Bon Jovi West. Yeah. Uh, it was, you know, Bon Jovi kind of set this whole thing up by their success in the mid-80s with, you know, what we now know as hair metal. Uh, they had the big hair and they had the uh, the, the uh, grandiose hits and uh, over the top. And it was definitely designed with the pop charts uh, and arena uh, tours uh, in mind. And so a couple of bands out in L.A. kind of took that that cue. And so they don't come out of the Motley uh, uh, crew dock in L.A. Guns part of L.A. They basically, again, it's it's the Bon, the bon jo- Jovi formula taken west. And so it's this, uh, you know, you start at power ballads and work your way up <laughs> is, is basically what it was. And so the two bands I want to focus on are Warrant and White Lion. Uh you know, White Lion was the gentlest of these of these bands. Uh, you know, their their biggest hit is When the Children Cry, uh, which is like so sappy and so maudlin that it's almost funny in retrospect. But I remember in like 1987 and 1988 when I was in seventh grade, you just could not get away uh, from that song. Uh, and, you know, there's lead singer who was one of these good looking guys with a perm and like, you know, uh, you know, open uh, open leather jackets with the, the hair and, and all of this. Gotta and show so, off that hair. Gotta show off the yeah. chest hair all yeah. the time. Yes, absolutely. The, the, the chest hair comes in there. Now, a couple of years later comes Warrant. And Warrant really is, uh, you know, is really the, um, is the crux uh, or, or sort of the, uh, the uh, 
shining monument uh, to this whole thing. So they come along in 1989 and they have this enormous pop hit, uh, Heaven, which is uh, very singable, but very bad. And if you sing it, you're immediately being ironic. Yeah. Uh, and so it was definitely designed for the uh, for the pop charts. Now, they took this. Now, Wet Lion took it and uh, made it as an excuse to actually become a better band. So I kind of respect uh, Wet Lion. Uh, the next record, they uh, covered uh, Golden Earring's Radar Love. So at least they had some taste. And then in uh, uh, 91, they had actually a pretty good power ballad song in You're All I Need. Now, Warrant, they took it as an excuse to just get excessive and ridiculous. Cherry uh, <laughs> cherry pie yeah. and so uh this of all of the songs and of all of the behaviors that we're going to mark on the list tells you how things had changed uh so in 1990 uh they have this song called cherry pie which is uh basically as misogynist as it gets so you know the idea it's a uh deliberate sex song uh cherry pie obviously is a uh is a uh, metaphor or a euphemism for vagina. And we all remember the video with uh, model Bobby Brown in her little short shorts and uh, tight uh, red and white polka dotted uh, top, uh, basically, you know, doing a stripper dance for the camera against white. Uh, Evidently she made such an impression on Jamie Lane. She became his wife, Uh, (laughs) you know? Uh, And so here, here you're talking about the, uh, uh, the most misogy- most misogynistic thing possible. You know, it's obviously around the same time as like Ghetto Boys and all that. So misogyny is all the rage. Uh, Nirvana comes along and wipes all that out uh, pretty much instantly. And so Warrant then tries to follow up in 92 with the same thing. The fans weren't having it. It only went gold. <laughs> and then like some of these other bands where they were like, oh shit, we're in trouble. Uh, they tried to make a... Um, a grunge record in 96. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, I'm not kidding. Obviously it was terrible. Uh, obviously it didn't work. Obviously nobody uh, respected them and uh, they fade into the abyss. And uh, in, in white line, you know, to white lines credit, they didn't even try that. <laughs> you know, they, they, like I said, their, their album was called main attraction, M A N E. So I think they uh, were sort of in on the joke at that point. And they just kind of uh, were content, or maybe not content, but they faded away. And uh, who knows, maybe we're playing county fairs uh, somewhere at this point. Uh, so uh, so that that's indicative of, of what happened is, you know, Kurt Cobain comes along with the song Polly, which, you know, is as uh, a strong a rebuke of misogyny as you can get by going into the uh, character of a misogynist. And then the next song on uh, Nevermind is... Uh, uh, territorial pissings, which has the line, uh, never met a wise man. If so, it's a woman. Right. So now, now you go through a period of a couple of years where the bikini kills and the holes come in. But not only that, the Pearl Jams, which were the sensitive band and all these socially conscious bands, Lollapalooza comes out of this, mm-hmm. uh, Rock the Vote comes out of this. And so you end up with this, this period where uh, meaningless hair metal rock, which, you know, uh, cocaine and groupies and all of that just sort of became... Uh, uh, taboo, at least to the corporate o- overlords at MTV. And uh, there goes Warren. Now, uh, this sets up uh, the uh, kind of the British uh, entry. And uh, let's just put it this way. Without this band, Bon Jovi probably wouldn't have been possible in the American record. Uh, 
uh, in the American uh, pantheon. And so, Arturo, what do you have to say about our number eight artist? Yeah, but this this band doesn't suck any less. <laughs> number eight, Def Leppard. Now we start talking about a band that is, in my not-so-humble opinion, one of the worst big-name bands of all time. Formed in the late 1970s and emerging in the early 1980s from Sheffield, England, as part of the quote-unquote new wave of British heavy metal, That included other ridiculous, pompous bands like Iron Maiden, Saxon, and Judas Priest. Def Leppard have been rocking the mindless masses for the past 40 years with their particular brand of silly, suck-ass football stadium rock. Before the likes of Nirvana and Pearl Jam came along in the early 1990s and thankfully cleansed rock fans' palates of all kinds of obnoxious metal, Def Leppard were genuinely one of the five biggest bands in the world. As mentioned previously, they were one of several British metal bands making inroads in the American market. Leppard, however, were always the lightweight band of the bunch, and they got even lighter weight with the help of producer Mutt Lang and the release of the super-polished, super-clean-sounding Pyromania in 1983. The album put the band in the forefront of 80s metal with huge hits such as Rock of Ages and Photograph. They followed up the smash success of Pyromania with the even smashier success of Hysteria in 1987, which endeared them to legions of glam slash hair metal fans. For the next two years, Def Leppard flooded rock radio and the pop charts as well, with the mind-numbingly dumb cock rock of Animal and Rocket, the annoyingly shrieking power ballad, shrieking and shrill, Love Bites, and the all-time strip joint anthem, Pour Some Sugar On Me. Then came the seismic change in rock. In early 1992, while Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit and Pearl Jam's Alive were burning up rock radio and changing the rock paradigm, Def Leppard released Adrenalize, which went to number one in the U.S., U.K., and several other countries, led by the preposterously stupid single Let's Get Rocked. Almost immediately after peaking at number 15 in the U.S. and number two in the U.K. soon after its release, the song and the accompanying album sank down the charts like a bowling ball in a swimming pool. Grunge and alt-rock had already taken over, Def Leppard's brand of cheese of cheese rock had become passé, and the band never came remotely close to matching the commercial success of Pyromania and Hysteria. More importantly, almost overnight, Def Leppard were relegated to dinosaur rock status doing the nostalgia circuit with a fan base of cornball metalheads that could never outgrow the 1980s. Pour some sugar on that. Chris? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, the uh, bowling ball in a swimming pool and the uh, uh, preposterousness uh, uh, of Let's Get Rocked, uh, you're, you're right on. Uh, I, I will give a couple of uh, shout outs to, uh, to these guys uh, in the sense that um, they did have, they could write a solid pop song. Uh, like, you know, like you said, pour your sugar on me. You said it's it's the strip club anthem for all time. And uh, 22-year-old me would uh, would give you a solid argument for 
uh, for why because <laughs> it actually does work. It's like that and Girls, Girls, Girls. Uh, you know, basically without those two songs, strip clubs have probably all gone broke there for a while. Uh, and I also like Rock of Ages as a, as a pop song. It's uh, uh, it's pretty clever and, you know, obviously has a couple of uh, sample uh, worthy uh, spots in that. And, and what the heck, they got a Broadway show out of the name. So it uh, can't be all bad. Steve Cart, not a bad songwriter. Uh, I think what happened, really what happened to this band is a couple of things. You have Pyromania and Hysteria back to back. I mean, this is kind of the Mutt Lang curse that you you make these albums that are so shiny and so sonically perfect and are, you know, the whole goal is to make one, you know, a bombastic, you know, anthemic single after another and make an album like that. When you do those, there's really nowhere to go but down anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, so you're going to settle down like we, well, in, you know, in the last episode, you know, like some of these bands, like, you know, Boston never got back to the heights of its debut records, but at least it went seven times platinum and four times platinum after that. So that's not really a bad come down. Uh, but in Def Leppard's case, uh, you know, the come down was more pronounced. Like you said, let's get rocked, which is just dumb. Uh, Vivian Campbell replaced Steve Clark. Um, he uh, obviously didn't contribute much in the way of the songwriting. Uh, actually wasn't even as good a rhythm guitarist. Uh, and so the music quality goes down. And even at that point, um, the one arm drummer thing loses its uh, power too, because that those are the two most compelling things about Def Leppard is that they, they managed to be a kind of sort of metal band that could make these, you know, songs that you just knew were going to be number one the, the moment you heard them. So they did have that gift. And then you had this extraordinary thing with their drummer who lost his arm in a car accident and taught himself how to play it with the help of a, a bass drum uh, defined uh, kit. So they do deserve some uh, credit, but yeah, uh, it wasn't a great loss to music as a whole when they fell off the top of the charts. And, uh, it, you know, it, it was just their time to go. So, uh, this is what like one of the more interesting uh, acts on this list in the sense that I actually don't did not mind this band. Uh, I, I found do. this band <laughs> I found this band entertaining and uh, better than they got credit for it. Uh, Skid Row. Uh, Skid Row is a testament to uh, a truism of rock that uh, oftentimes you live and die on the contributions and charisma of your uh of your front man that the front man can make all the difference in your success and in your failures and so skid row has one of the more interesting charismatic uh funnier uh front men and you know let's face it pretty good looking guy uh of the era uh sebastian bach uh you know the guy who got on the cover of the rolling stone in 1991 and a good friend of my father's looks at it and she says, is that a woman? <laughs> uh, so, so at least there was prettiness there. But uh, so what you get here is you get a pretty credible metal band. Uh, Dave, the snake Sabo and Rachel Bolin uh, could write pretty good songs. I mean, the first album had the pop stuff. Obviously you had, uh, I remember you and 18 in life, which is what got them on MTV and made them so famous. Uh, Bach to his credit was a better singer than most of these guys. He wasn't a screamer. He was actually a singer. Uh, but the thing about Bach was that Bach just had a big mouth. 
Uh, he had a nasty side to him. Uh, he probably had some substance issues or uh, he was not the kind of guy that you wanted to put in front of the camera when he had been drinking or, or, or doing drugs. Uh, he overshadowed whatever success this band could have. I remember a famous incident. My dad's hometown is Springfield, Mass., and they had a concert there. Uh, during the show, uh, some obnoxious asshole fan in the front threw a glass bottle on stage that almost hit uh, uh, Bach. It didn't break, and so Bach took it and threw it back in the crowd, aiming for that guy. It hit a, a woman in the head instead. But at least to Bach's credit, he jumped into the crowd and beat up the right person. Uh, and so there was that. Uh, he also... Uh, got in trouble for a t-shirt uh, that he uh, wore at a publicity event. And I'm only going to repeat it just for the sake of newsiness. Uh, it read AIDS kills fags dead. Yeah. Classy uh, which, you know, stay classy, Sebastian. Yeah. Stay classy, Sebastian, obviously goofing on uh, raids old, um, old slogan. And so uh, that got them uh, a bad rap there. And so Bach was kind of, uh, yeah, that little bit of that bad boy and a little bit of that controversy and uh, annoyance. Now, in 1991, they had what turned out to be one of the biggest albums of that year, Slave to the Grind. Uh, first metal record to debut at number one on the Billboard charts. Yes, that's true. Um, you, you would think that some of the other, uh, you know, like the Slippery When Wets might have debuted number one. Nope, it was Skid Row. Uh, they went different direction on that record. That record actually had a harder edge yeah, I, uh, with the uh, monkey business and slave to the grind. And, you know, it was more orthodox metal. The problem was, is that, you know, Bach, for as good of a singer as Bach was, he wasn't really the, the best singer for that record. It was more appropriate for Rob Halford kind of screamer. And so it was a little bit incongruent. And, uh, and so at this point, you know, I mean, it's amazing. You know, they managed to hold on to Bach for like seven or eight years or something before he finally disappeared. Uh, but at this point, the rest of the band couldn't stand him because of the overshadowing and his attitude and all of that. Uh, they had at least they had a strategy for dealing with Nirvana. It, they, they didn't get they didn't maybe they got caught off guard, but they weren't as sloppy about it or they weren't as reactionary about it or they weren't in denial. Uh, their strategy, uh, from what I've learned in my research, was they were going to lay low for two or three years. They had this notion that this grunge thing and these punk bands were going to be a fad, and then you were going to get back to the standard uh, glossy leather-bound, big hair uh, rock. Yeah. And uh, it was a miscalculation, but at least they gave it a shot. <laughs> and, you know, by, you know, by then it was like, oh, Sebastian Bach was cute back in the day. I mean, you know, back then uh, uh, five years went by a lot slower than it does now. I mean, it was pre-internet. And so it was like, oh, yeah, he's a relic of that hair metal era. And so they never really caught back on. And then Bach went on. Uh, he did some Broadway. I think he did Jesus Christ Superstar and he did some traveling theater and he did a couple of solo records and he had a reality show, him and his wife on uh, VH1, I believe it was, or E. Uh, but uh, Bach is a funny dude. And I want to end this segment, uh, even though Skid Row faded, uh, the man deserves credit for being really funny and having some quotables. So let me just run through a series of some quotes uh, that uh, I find uh, not just funny, but also very clever. So uh, running through the list, I am the man who put the hair in hair metal. Life has always imitated art 
and my art has always imitated life. Maybe if they started playing new rock bands videos, then maybe there, but then maybe, but there's no point in a guy like me spending 250 grand for a video that no one is ever going to see. Nobody wants a fat lead singer. The worst thing I ever wore really was rubber pants, but I don't think that was a cliche. They were just way too hot. Rubber doesn't breathe. I look back on my photos and I dig them. I think I look really cool. Well, you know, if you do 200 shows a year, they're not all going to be like Castle Donington. And then uh, my personal favorite on this list, maybe one day I can have a reunion with myself. When we go from one supposedly sexy, one band with a supposedly sexy lead singer to a band that really did have a sexy lead singer. There you go. And this band is in excess. Now, I will admit, this is an odd one to put on the Nirvana body count list. But it's a testament to the fact that it wasn't just hair metal that the alternative slash grunge revolution swept aside. It also cast aside shiny, polished pop rock that was so prevalent in the 1980s and of the kind in excess excelled at. Yes, you heard that last sentence right, Chris. I actually like in excess. I do too. They were a pop band, but they were a very good pop band with some great, hooky, infectious songs. I just heard Kick earlier today, and I loved it. And with Michael Hutchins, they had a charismatic frontman who oozed sexuality that Bono was uh, notoriously envious of. Hutchins was basically the Jim Morrison of the 80s. Nevertheless, it isn't mere coincidence that their decline in popularity and loss of stature in the pop music landscape coincided with the rock revolution that Nirvana ushered in. Having already been huge in their native Australia, the band broke through in the U.S. and Europe in 1985 with the hit album Listen Like Thieves and the hit single What You Need. They followed that up with the colossal success of 1987's Kick, one of the best pure pop albums of the decade and possibly of all time. They scored four top 10 hits in the U.S. with Need You Tonight, Devil Inside, New Sensation, and the aching power ballad Never Tear Us Apart, all of which are stone-cold classics of the decade. It was always going to be difficult to match the success of Kick, but they nearly did so with 1990's X, which notched two more top 10 hits with the funk blues hybrid of Suicide Blonde and the R&B soul stomper disappear. By 1991, NXS could claim to be in the U2 sphere of the pop rock echelon. Unlike U2, however, they weren't able to really reinvent themselves in order to compete with the darker turn that rock music in general would later take in the decade. Welcome to Wherever You Are was released in the summer of 1992, debuting at a very disappointing 16 in the U.S. charts with, charts with no hit singles. Thinking it was an anomaly, the band quickly recorded a follow-up and released Full Moon Dirty Hearts in late 1993, reaching only number 53 in the album charts, and again, no hits. The band's floundering fortunes continued with their 1997 comeback attempt, Elegantly Wasted, which did nothing commercially nor critically. The combination of the band's commercial decline, 
escalating drug use and personal relationship issues with his then girlfriend, Paula Yates, especially regarding the child custody battle between Yates and her previous partner, Bob Geldof, must have taken a toll on Michael Hutchins. In November 1997, Hutchins was found dead in a hotel room in Sydney as a result of an apparent suicide. The band soldiered on for many years with a revolving door of different lead singers doing what they could in the legacy and nostalgia touring circuit. They broke up for good in 2012. Poor in excess. They deserve better. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, NXS uh, is one of the more interesting bands of the 80s. Uh, first off, I'll say that I think I Need You Tonight is one of the best rock songs of the 1980s. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, it. they kind of struck this really neat balance between some electronic influence, you know, with the drum machine. Yeah. and But the, the riff, the two riffs on that, uh, especially the uh, the chorus riff, uh, is is one of the best. I mean, it's you know, supple is is a critic word, but that really is a supple uh, riff. And so, uh, you know, I, I definitely uh, respected uh, that band. Uh, it's interesting though to me that "Never Tear Us Apart" is the song that really hasn't died yeah. and has stood the test of time. I mean, that's the one. I mean, it was my least favorite of those songs, even if it you know, as power ballads go, and. It's just a ballad because, you know, it's it's strings and kind of a low, bluesy, sexy guitar. It wasn't like, uh, you know, I mean, think power ballads. It wasn't like Aerosmith's Dream On or any of that kind of stuff that you would think of as orthodox uh, uh, you know, power ballads. But, you know, a couple, couple of things. One, you know, it's interesting. I think they became a better band even after this, even if they started to fall off. I mean, my favorite NXS song is Not Enough Time. Uh, I also thought "Elegantly Wasted" was pretty good. Yeah, I did. Um, I did too. I like that song. Yeah, and so they they did pop songs. But here here was the thing. I think what happened was, um, well, two things uh, happened to them. I think one uh, one of the effects of the Nirvana, you know, Pearl Jam kind of thing is it became uh, kind of taboo to become a, an orthodoxly good looking guy <laughs> uh, during this period. I mean, yeah, you know, Cobain and Vetter and Cornell and all those fans, you know, people had their fans, but they were sort of more metal sexy yeah. and this sort of you know, dark, mysterious thing, you know, like even Ketis, who, you know, was a goofball, but he was jacked. Uh, and so these, these model handsome guys, all of a sudden it was like, Oh, you know, that anything that was considered synthetic became kind of, on the outs, at least there for a couple of years. And maybe by 1995, it was starting to restore. And so I think there's that, but also you can't understate the competition that really broke out in 1988 between NXS and George Michael. Mm -hmm. And I say that because George Michael dabbled in the same kind of, uh, electronic, uh, combination electronic, um, and, uh, conventional guitar, like pop and, and radio pop. And, you know, I think George Michael, uh, you know, Faith was a bigger record um, than Kick, ultimately, and longer lasting. I mean, he was pumping out hits from that for like a year and a half. And then he followed it up uh, with Hit Freedom 90 mm. on that, which uh, really was another one of those that has withstood the test of time. So if you think about that overall genre, I think George Michael leaves a better influence, a bigger influence than, than Hutchins. So... I think that's another contributing factor. But yes, uh, NXS just lost its momentum and kind of was a victim of time and place. And then obviously Michael Hutchins' personal life 
uh, put the ichne on them, uh, no pun intended. On this episode, Chris and I did a body count of the band waste laid by Nirvana's alternative rock revolution. For the next episode, we'll talk about another music revolution that is currently, and bafflingly, at least to us, setting the musical environment on fire. K-pop. Join us next episode as we ask the question that needs to be asked. K-pop. What the fuck? We're going to have an actual Korean-born music aficionado on as a guest to explain exactly why this music is so big, as well as its origins, and how exactly BTS became an infinitely more popular BTS than Chris and I's beloved Built to Spill. Email us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com or hit us on Twitter at at curmudgeonpod. Now we're back to shitty bands. Chris? <laughs> yeah, but uh, but an interesting shitty band. Uh, and look, I, I'll shit on them a little bit, but I have to be respectful. Poison. Oh, God. So Poison, you know, we talked about Warren's misogyny. Uh, that was more about the timing and the juxtaposition with Cherry, cherry Pie. But uh, the most misogynistic and sophomoric of all the bands on this list uh, in terms of the metal genre, was Poison. Uh, no, they, uh, the other band you have coming up soon is up there as well. <laughs> well, yeah, that yeah, that is true. But uh, but Poison was even worse. Uh, you know, they they broke through with a song called "Talk Dirty to Me," uh, which not a bad pop song. CC uh, Deville could play guitar at least, but yeah, it, it, it was not Shakespeare by any stretch of the imagination. But it did. Uh, uh, break them out uh, uh, big. And then they had this run for a few years to their credit where they would go back and forth between these ridiculous uh, odes to sex and, you know, over the top poppy uh, kind of icky, uh, uh, icky stuff, you know, unskinny bop. I mean, great name, but terrible song and, you know, nothing but a good time and you know, all that stuff. But then Brett Michaels, you know, who perhaps is the most self-serious guy, in the history of rock and roll, which is really saying something <laughs> when you think about it, there's a whole lot of self-serious assholes out there, but Brett Michaels might take the cake, but you know, he did every rose has its thorn, which was an enormous hit and continues to be enormous uh, on Spotify. It's like 250 million uh, listens or something. Uh, he had fallen angel. He had something to believe in. And so there was this, these attempts to be serious and with the exception of every rose has its thorn, were just completely laughable. Um, but I remember watching a behind the music on Poison and came away respecting them. They, you know, they came out there from Pennsylvania with like $12 and, you know, they, you know, were basically homeless and starving and lived off the good graces of women uh, for a couple of years. And then they found their way. Uh, and, uh, you know, basically what happened to them was they happened to self-destruct on national television versus the video music on the, during the video music awards on, uh, in 1991, where they started to play one song and CC DeVille, who was ripped out of his mind, uh, decided he wanted to just start playing talk dirty to me. And so the band had to follow him. Uh, Michaels gives a shrug on stage and immediately goes backstage and punches DeVille in the face. And that was that. <laughs> and uh and so in the ensuing years i mean they tried uh doing a couple other things it and they felt like a stone uh 
because, you know, DeVille was really the only decent musician in that band. And, uh, and so Michaels was like, fuck it. And he started acting in like, you know, straight to video, uh, uh, movies and, uh, you know, worked hard at other stuff too, you know, businesses and all of that. And eventually had a, uh, in a way, kind of one of my favorite, uh, reality shows of all time called rock my world on VH1. And it was really silly. It was kind of like the, uh, the hair metal nostalgia set for a uh, version of the bachelor where Michaels was the bachelor and you had all these like skeezy uh, chicks from the era and, you know, just sort of, you know, the, uh, the cookie cutter, like booby mannequin types. Uh, and so at the end of every episode, uh, Brett Michaels would be like, Kim, you rock my world. And then they'd start uh, like disgustingly making out and, you know, like kissing like porpoises. Uh, it was, it was pretty repugnant. So, uh, yeah, kind of so like I said, music. It, yeah, it's perfect, perfectly matched. Yeah, yeah, well, pretty, pretty much. And so uh, it's it's funny uh, that yeah, I mean, Nirvana basically killed this band or killed any chances of a real comeback, but uh, this band killed itself uh, just as Nirvana was getting on MTV. So uh, kind of funny. Uh, and like Arturo said, you know, Poison, not a good band. Uh, a band you could respect, a shitty band, but uh, Nirvana did the world a favor by uh, giving us a, a metal enema <laughs> and replacing guys like Brett Michaels, who, you know, Michaels is just one of those guys that when he comes on the screen, it just screams, dick. <laughs> and that's how I'll end that. And that's a good transition because uh, the next band that we're going to talk about, Liam Gallagher from Oasis referred to them as dicks in tights. okay that's wonderful and this this band is none other than genesis okay another unlikely victim of the alternative grunge tidal wave genesis's glossy brand of bland middle of the road lightweight pop rock for soccer moms and wall street bankers was all of a sudden deemed and seen as old hat old-fashioned, and corny. And let's face it, Genesis always was those things. It just took Nirvana's revolution to bring that fact to the mainstream. Now, much has been written and filmed about Genesis and their truly unique story. Look no further than the excellent 2014 documentary, Genesis Together and Apart, for the full story. (laughs) Basically, what started as a high-concept progressive rock band in the 1970s with Peter Gabriel as lead singer, slowly evolved into a more accessible, progressively pop group with drummer Phil Collins pushed up front as lead singer. The band's profile being enhanced by Collins's inexplicably phenomenally successful solo career as a pop singer, in the 1980s they produced one multi-platinum album after another, culminating in the 1986 blockbuster Invisible Touch, which produced four top 10 singles in the U.S. In late 1991, they released We Can't Dance. And while it went multi-platinum and hit number one in several countries, it was mainly due to the momentum generated by the previous smash hit albums. The two hit singles from the album, the bluesy I Can't Dance and the sappy ballad No Son of Mine, were moderate hits that didn't stay in the charts long and aren't generally considered vintage Genesis classics. 
The World Stadium Tour they embarked on in 1992 was successful in terms of raw numbers, but it was marked by a significant lack of sellout shows. And I looked this up on Wikipedia, like their tour for 92, like almost none of the shows sold out. A lot of them were only like half empty and shit like that. And remember, this was the year of U2's Zoo TV tour and the year Lollapalooza became a household word. word. So it's no surprise that the Genesis tour that year kind of flopped. They released one more album in 1997, Calling All Stations, which completely flopped. And the band soon called it a day and broke up shortly afterward. Genesis still have a large number of fans, and they are indeed a legacy act. Even I'll admit to liking some of their songs. But the early 1990s and Nirvana's alt-rock uprising marked the beginning of the end for one of rock history's most unique bands and most unique stories. For better or for worse. And I guess for the most part, for better. <laughs> Chris? Yeah, well, from where they had arrived by 1991, it was definitely for the much, 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 much better. Uh, whereas uh, the Warrant-Nirvana uh, dichotomy, that was a uh, treatment of women misogyny, or excuse me, juxtaposition. Uh, Genesis is a really what you call a musical juxtaposition yeah. between uh, uh, phoning it in versus... Uh, being authentic, raw, and uh, on mission. Uh, so, you know, Genesis is obviously they have one of the more interesting and curious uh, rides in rock history. Obviously, you know, they start off as a, uh, a prog rock band with Peter Gabriel dressed as broccoli. <laughs> and, you know, the, the Lamb Lies on Broadway, which, you know, obviously, you know, it gets all this reverence, but I think is the worst of the big uh, prog uh, uh, albums of the 70s it's, is just it's, terrible it's pretty bad yeah <laughs> and so he leaves phil collins kind of and mike rutherford kind of take the um the reins and they actually formed uh the bones of a really good band uh they have uh abacab uh which is uh one of the better uh, you know there was a reason that they became popular in this iteration because abacab is a really good record it's 1981. They release it just as MTV is hitting. And uh, this is an album that has these really great kind of dance rock, uh, almost soulful uh, songs. You know, Collins is still playing drums at this point. Uh, you know, they have uh, No Reply at All, which I think is their, in this iteration, is their best song by far. Uh, it's got the horn uh, sections, you know, clearly influenced by the Earth, Wind and Fire and uh Cool in the gangs of, of the 70s. So they, you know, they have those touches. Uh, Abacab, the, uh, the title song, seven minutes, but it's a great song. Uh, and so, you know, here they go. They break into the mainstream. And so then what happens is, you know, Collins uh, from this point is like, okay, well, I'm, I'm growing up and I need to graduate from rock. So I'm going to go pure pop. And oh, by the way, there's this thing, there's these things called keys and synthesizers and drum machines, which Mike Rutherford discovers at the same time. And like you said, you know, they get to the point, you know, where they're, they're doing like, uh, uh, the, all the sort of the, the boppy stuff, you know, although I, I did kind of like illegal alien as a novelty song. That was kind of fun. And, uh, a goofy video with, uh, 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 Phil Collins dressed up as a Mexican and a fake mustache, uh, which is, yeah, a my, favorite funny image of phil collins but i can't dance 
So at least Invisible Touch and Land of Confusion. I mean, Land of Confusion, I love the video, which yeah. is all the, the Seals and Croft puppets. Right. Uh, they get to I Can't Dance and Muy Terrible. Uh, it just was, okay, let's make more money. Um, songwriting's terrible. Production's terrible. Uh, it's, you know, you called uh, the title track bluesy, and I'm like, uh, no, uh, blues actually has like, um, stuff filling the spaces. Uh, that that album's all spaces. Well, they, and they, were, little... they were trying to be bluesy. <laughs> yeah, they, they 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 were trying, but it's just this coin garbage uh, sack. It was almost like uh, electro boogie rock for twelve year olds. It's I mean, look, it's kind of like take the the ZZ Top concept. And take Billy Giddens out of it, and what are you left with? Shit. Uh, and so that's where they are. And so they released this album, which is god awful, and boom, blast, and it's like you guys suck. Yeah, you know. You're old. And so you're old. You suck. Yeah, yeah, one, you're old. Two, you suck. Yeah. It was the least uh, ideal period of all time to release a really bad record when you were a big band. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, it was an undeniably bad album that was kind of, even then was a kind of out of tune with the times. Yeah. I mean, even the pop was not doing what they were doing at that point. And so they were already kind of, out, you know, uh, tone deaf. And then after that, it was just whatever they were going to do was just not going to fail. So you can't get any more juxtaposed than uh, I can't dance and nevermind. I mean, geez, I mean, maybe after this recording, I should just go back and just put those on back to back <laughs> and, and and really just kind of uh, uh, really just kind of have a good laugh. So uh, sorry, Phil Collins, but yeah, uh, you deserve to die. And I'm glad that Nirvana uh, twisted the knife yeah. uh, in your side. And I'm really glad Nirvana twisted the knife big time on this next band. Chris. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So, uh, uh, interesting case. So it's a tale of two bands. Um, we're talking about Motley Crue. And they both suck. <laughs> which, which is only your opinion. I'm only going to pick on the second iteration of Motley Crue. So, uh, Motley Crue, uh, I think it's fair to say that without Motley Crue, you do not get LA hair metal. It's like them and Ozzy. Uh, they both break out in 1980, 81. Um, and they kind of set the, the tone uh, for it, uh, musically and theatrically, and then obviously hair-wise. Uh, but those first two Motley Crue records, Too Fast for Love and Shout at the Devil, are actually great records uh, in terms of being glam metal, in terms of defining their original show, which found uh, Nikki Six, who's already 6'7", in these like big ass platform boots and with, and with the, the, I think both the boots and the car the guitar are shooting fire. And so, you know, so you've got all that going on. Uh, and you know, they were really defining something and, you know, looks that kill, uh, really is the kind of the, the gateway it's, uh, it's misogynistic and, and poppy enough to get there, but it still has that sort of, you know, like it's, it's a riff, uh, fest, you know, uh, need to say Mick Mars, uh, uh, what the hell was he doing in this band? I mean, this little, this little guy with ankylosing spondylitis, who is just like the least sexy guy in the world. And he's in there with Nikki six, Tommy Lee and Vince Neal, who are like, uh, they were all decadent. 
but like McMars is like a decade older than those guys too. Yeah, he's he's an older guy. He's like five foot three or five foot four. He's got ankylosing spondylitis, which my dad had, by the way. Um, and he went, yeah, you know, inevitably, you know, those ankylosing spondylitis guys, they all end up uh, badly hooked on alcohol and painkillers because, look, let's face it, they need it. Uh, that's an aside. So that's the first Motley Crew. Then the second Motley Crew is they get famous. Uh, they realize they can make a bunch of money. And at this point, they're probably way into cocaine and pussy, uh, pardon the term. But yeah, they were way into cocaine and pussy. And so they wanted to make cocaine and pussy music. So along comes Theater of Pain. And then the, uh, the absolute zenith, or what would, what, you know, what would you call it? It would be like the, uh, it would be like the songs in the key of life of, of hair metal in some respects. It's just, I mean, if, if you know, if, if hair metal has a classic record, uh, and this is way damning with faint praise. It's girls, girls, girls. Songs in the uh, songs in the key of suck. Yes, <laughs> or yeah, yeah. Songs in the key of horse shit. Um, so yeah, it it was pretty bad. So, uh, so they get there and they become, you know, in a way because of the way they started and the way that uh, uh, Nikki Six proved that he could write songs initially. You have to kind of. Um, uh, you have to shame them one for the excess that got in the way of their focus, but two cynicism, uh, they could do better. I mean, they could do way better. They just chose to, uh, we're just going to go in the lifestyle and we'll just pump out what we need to. And, you know, Nikki six is badly hooked on heroin. Everybody else is an alcoholic. Uh, and it, again, it just became uh, a disaster. Now, uh, they tried to, you know, they stayed successful. Dr. Feelgood, which I believe is still their biggest record. Uh, they worked with Bob Rock. Uh, bad record. At least it sounded great. <laughs> uh, it sounded great, but it's a terrible record. And at this point, it's getting harder to take uh, Vince Neil uh, and Tommy Lee seriously. You know, Tommy Lee used to do that show with the drums where he'd go upside down on the ceiling. Okay, cool. But, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call him a great drummer. And it just gets to the point where another one of these bands kind of like Poison, where they're kind of at their self-destruct button right as Nirvana's coming along. And Vince Neil gets his ass fired uh, for uh, being so drunk and so hungover that he couldn't do anything in the um, in the sessions. It's kind of like what happened to Ozzy and Black Sabbath is in a in a band full of junkies. He was the worst junkie. <laughs> you know, or he was he was the most dysfunctional junkie. I mean, at least everybody else could still work. Uh, and then they tried to do, you know, the, the warrant thing and they were the most, uh, uh, high profile of these bands. They went out and, uh, hired a new lead singer and they, uh, released this album called Hooligans Holiday in 1994. The 90s were not kind to Molly Crew. (laughs) No, not at all. And so they tried, they tried to do a more hardcore grungy, uh, punkish, you know, almost kind of like getting back to what they were doing in Too Fast for Love. But by then they were, you know, they were just too damaged and it really didn't work. The fans didn't like it. You know, they ran uh, the new singer to the hills. <laughs> and uh, by the end of the, uh, the decade, they were in the nostalgia circuit, which to their credit, they've still, uh, I don't think they've done it lately. And a lot of it has to do with um, them just being content to, uh, right off into the sunset. I know Nikki Six has a radio program. I, you know Tommy Lee is still, you know, doing It Boy celebrity stuff, 
And I think Vince Neal is back on the outs with them. But for a while, they were doing very well on the nostalgia circuit. So got to give them credit for that. But they were a band that deserved to die. Uh, and if they, if you're going to do a grunge impersonation, at least be less cynical and more uh, invested in it. And so that's what happened to Motley Crue and uh, Good Riddance. Yeah, Good Riddance. You know, when I was 12 years old, I really tried to get into them. Like I, when I was, I bought a cassette copy of Girls, Girls, Girls. I bought a cassette copy <laughs> of, of, of Poisons Open Up and Say Ah. Uh, I really tried to get into because they, they were the hip, cool bands, right, back then. Yep. And, and I listened to them and I tried and I just couldn't. I couldn't. Like subconsciously, my rock and roll DNA was, was already shaped by the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and Rush and Queen. I couldn't get into that crap. And that's the reason why I just dug my head into the classic rock sand for all those years of the late 80s, early 90s, until, you know, Nirvana came out. And, and that kind of completely changed my outlook on, on rock music, you know. But, yeah, I really it, – it's I, to this day, I can only count two Motley Crue songs that I like. Only two. Looks to Kill – and um, the one song from Dr. Feelgood, the one that really rocks hard. What's that one? Uh, Dr. Feelgood. No, 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 no. Not the other. There's another one. Oh, Kickstart My Heart. I, I kind of like that song. And that's about it. Those are the only Motley Crue songs I could really like get behind. The rest of the biography yeah. is just rubbish. And the next band on the list is a band that I deem just a slightly better version <laughs> of Motley Crue. And with all due respect to the recently deceased Eddie Van Halen, I have to put good old VH on the list of bands made irrelevant by alternative rock and grunge. There's no need to describe Van Halen's music or who they were, because if you do need that description, you probably shouldn't be listening to this podcast. <laughs> so <laughs> quick, yeah, quick, Chris, can you name me one hit song by Van Halen after 1992? Uh, no, nope. Uh, because they had they had right now in 1992. Yeah, which uh, uh, for, for for what it's worth, if you can have a song that has a 19 song pop uh, hit shelf life, that's pretty good. Yeah, but but yeah, they did uh, they did not have a uh, hit unless unless you want to include Me Wise Magic yeah. that got that got airplay, but it wasn't a hit. Yeah. So anyway, anyway. Uh, and, proceed. And, and the reason they didn't have a hit after 1992 is because by then they were washed up and done. Now purists will tell you Van Halen was done when David Lee Roth left the band in 1985, but they continued to have success with Sammy Hagar. 1986's 5150 and 1988's OU812 they're so clever with their song titles. Uh, those albums went multi-platinum and produced plenty of rock radio hits. In the summer of 1991, mind you, this is before Nirvana's Nevermind was unleashed, Van Halen released their last successful album and last gasp of rock and roll relevancy, the cheekily titled For Unlawful Carnal Knowledge. Fuck. Yeah, exactly. It had some hits. You know, there was the insufferably dopey Pound Cake and their quote-unquote deep social message song, the one you just name-checked, Chris, right now, which was a genuine MTV hit in spring of 92 amidst all the alt-rock and grunge reverie. 
And that was it for them as a commercial and pop cultural force. They released Balance in early 1995, which debuted at number one on the album charts due to the VH brand name alone, but soon disappeared from the charts with no real hits on it. Not surprisingly, Van Halen's brand of macho cock rock was suddenly stale and outdated, especially compared to the classic albums being put out at the time by the likes of Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Nine Inch Nails, Radiohead, and Oasis. After the tour for Balance, Hagar and Eddie started to have strained relations, leading to Hagar's exit. David Lee Roth briefly came back into the fold to record two new songs for a Van Halen compilation album. Exit Roth after he and Eddie had a fight during the 1996 MTV Music Awards show. Enter Gary Sharon from the has-been metal band Extreme. Van Halen 3 was released in 1998 to justifiably commercial and critical scorn, followed by a poorly attended tour. Exit Sharon, and that's it for the Van Halen story, unless you count the brief reunions and tours with both Hagar and Roth playing the old classics to their old fans. It could be said, yeah. it could be said that Van Halen's real downfall was Eddie's escalating alcoholism and Hagar's disinterest in the band, probably because of dealing with Eddie's issues. But it cannot be discounted that the rock landscape completely changed underneath Van Halen's feet during the when when Alternative and Grunge came out came out, and uh, they weren't able yeah. to face it or compete with it. Yeah, I mean that's. I mean, I, I think that, that that's valid. There's lots of reasons, like you said, for Van Halen's. Uh, uh, demise. Uh, they actually, part of it was probably the, uh, the switch from misogyny to, uh, female reverence as well. Cause you got to remember when, uh, Sammy Hagar, uh, is singing pound cake, he's in his fifties. Yeah. Uh, so makes it a little creepy. Uh, number one on this list. Congratulations, and- Axel. You're number one, two episodes in a row on the curmudgeon rock report. Yes, and uh, who knows, maybe we'll fit you in as number one on the next episode and give you a trend. Uh, yes, uh, yes, Guns and, Guns and Roses. This one's obvious. I think of all these bands, uh, you know, we're, a lot of the times we're making arguments here about why Nirvana was the uh, the death knell and, you know, was the, the pivot that, you know, uh, that dropped these bands off. Uh, besides Warrant, uh, this is... Uh, this is the one uh, band that you can say, yeah, Nirvana actually did kill Guns N' Roses. Uh, and they really did because think about this. I, you know, I look back on it in my life. And so I, at the time I'm 16, it was a really strange six months. So the use your illusion albums, I won't cover appetite and destruction uh, in, in detail here. You can go listen to episode nine on the one and Dunners uh, in our library, but the Use Your Illusion albums come out, and it's two albums. It's Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2, and it's uh, representative of Axel's new decadence and uh, uh, star uh, and maybe even hero complex where, you know, why do a tight album, another tight album of nine or ten great songs when you can do uh, two sprawling albums with the good stuff uh, mess mixed in with the uh, – the mind-bogglingly, at least weird, if not bad, stuff that should have stayed on the cutting floor. But, yes, and so those albums come out, and I'll admit they come out, and I'm obsessed with them. Uh, there's some really great stuff on those. 
you know, the, um, you've got any album that has three Magnum opuses on it. Can't be all that bad. <laughs> uh, you know, November rain, which I used to like until it got played to death and still gets played to death, uh, estranged, which is, uh, the one that should have blown up. And then, uh, coma, which is the best of those three songs because it basically amounts to not necessarily prog metal, but it's kind of like rock opera for, uh, uh, for metal. And so it's, it's got that sort of Elton John, uh, kind of mid seventies long form kind of stuff going on, but in a uh, LA metal context. So, uh, some pretty good stuff. I was obsessed with that and they're all over MTV. You know, they're the it boys there. They have the, you could be mine uh, video. Uh, they have the don't cry video, which, you know, was at the time was, was high concept. And, you know, on the forerunner to what became total request live, you know, these were the number one, uh, requests. And this is happening in September and October. Uh, and so I'm all about Guns N' Roses at this point, even though, you know, again, uh, they've added a pianist, they've added backup singers. Uh, they're cornier than they were on Appetite for Destruction, but it's still working for me. Uh, and so while they're number one on these request shows in MTV, there's this other band uh, named Nirvana uh, that was consistently coming in at about seven or eight starting in like October and okay. Yeah. Interesting looking video, whatever, you know, I go off, you know, uh, go get a snack, go to the bathroom or something, come back and it goes back to you know, all the, all the hair metal, all the mainstream metal. And slowly that starts to climb up that chart and eclipses the guns and roses stuff at number one, starting in like January. And then lo and behold in late January, early February, that's the number one record in the country. So now all of a sudden I'm like, Okay, well, maybe I should start paying attention to this band. Uh, I go and buy Nevermind. Uh, and I think it was after Come As You Are, I, I believe was the second single. And after I heard that, and so I went and got that record and immediately was just blown away and was like, oh, okay, I thought I had it right. This is right. Um, and uh, MTV agreed. And so by like March or April, uh, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, are out there, you know, Outshined is getting regular play, then that summer Rusty Cage, and then Temple of the Dog, <clears throat> which is the super group. But Temple of the Dog and singles are really what uh, uh, congealed uh, grunge into the new pop, into the new pop metal. But Nirvana before then. And so what happens is now Guns N' Roses is playing second fiddle. And so now by fall of 1992, they're starting to drop their other videos like Dead Horse and all that. By then, it's like, meh. And by then, Izzy Stratman's quit the band. Uh, and they have Gilby Clark, who's, you know, kind of a dope. And, you know, they start to have their um, their infighting. Uh, and also that fall, you got to remember, I think Metallica has something to do with this, too that uh, they go on tour with Metallica and there's an incident. I want to say it was in Toronto. Montreal. Or it was Montreal. It was in Canada yeah. where James Hetfield gets badly burned in a pyro accident. And this is after, you know, Axel had done, I believe the sequence was Axel does two or three songs and decides that he doesn't like the sound or whatever's going on. So he ends the set. Metallica comes out and in the beginning part of their set, you know, Hetfield gets, you know, singed half to death. Uh, Axel won't come back out. And he's like, ah, fuck it. You know, I don't feel like playing. A riot breaks out. Yeah. So now uh, you've not only got this for, you know, you've got this segue into authenticity at all costs. 
Metallica's big. You're talking like the two biggest metal bands in the world. Guns N' Roses pisses off all the Metallica fans, makes himself, and this is like Asshole Part 1. Asshole Part 2 is the Video Music Awards where he almost gets into a legitimate fight with Kurt Cobain. And, you know, Courtney Love is talking shit. And then uh, uh, Kurt Cobain is talking shit. And then Axel's talking shit. And it gets ugly. And Guns N' Roses comes out looking bad. And so by the time you get to 93, the video for Estranged comes out. And it features Slash coming out of the ocean uh, with dolphins swimming around him while he's playing his solo on the ocean like he's walking on water. Uh, And at this point, this is just, okay, this has gotten fucking ridiculous. And then, of course, you know, uh, you know, I think Axel kind of took this all personally. And then he's like, "Okay, now let's put out an album of covers, which, again, in 93, 94 is the worst possible thing you could do because everybody was looking for new, exciting and edgy. Uh, You know, putting out covers um, at that point was just a bad move. And then, of course, the band falls apart. Uh, Axel gets basically uh, Axel gets himself fired from the band. But somehow maintains the trademark and, you know, puts together a poser band that takes 15 years to put out a record. Um, and, uh, that was that. So Nirvana basically slammed Guns N' Roses down the, uh, they were the tamping bar that put Guns N' Roses on the B set on MTV. And that was that. Yeah. Uh, there are a couple of other stories again, according to the Everett true, uh, book, about uh, the biography of Nirvana. When GNR were doing their tour with Metallica in 1992, the, uh, Axel really, really, really wanted Nirvana to be the opening act. He, want, he wanted to be Guns N' Roses, Metallica, Nirvana in summer of 92. And of course, you know, Kurt Cobain said, hell, fuck, no. <laughs> you know, I'm not doing that tour. You know, um, Guns, Axl Rose was a legitimate fan of Nirvana's music. I think it always hurt him that Kurt Cobain wasn't going to re- re- reciprocate any kind of <laughs> affection. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. um, like you, you mentioned uh, the, the MTV Music Awards. Uh, basically what happened was, you know, Axel and his entourage, whatever, were walking by. Courtney Love mouthed off on him. He turned to Kurt and said, man, dude, you better tell your bitch to shut up. And then Kurt Cobain in total deadpan just turned to Courtney Love and said, shut up, bitch. You know, kind of making fun of Axel. Axel stormed off. Um, another part of this story, uh, according to Everett True, uh, a very, very drunk Duff McKagan was a uh, walking backstage looking to like, you know, confront members of Nirvana, you know, you're talking shit about my bad man. And then Chris Novoselic got really pissed off. And Novoselic is a very, very tall, very strong guy. You know, yes. you don't want to get yeah. in a fight with him. Yeah. You don't fuck with Chris Novoselic. You know? And he went up to Duff McKagan and he, he said, listen, dude, you want to get into a fight? I'll fight with you right now, but you better tell your people to turn around and leave. Because as soon as I start fighting you, they're going to jump me. All right. So if you want to fight, we do it one on one. Just you and me. Just like that. And McKagan just turned around and cursed and left. <laughs> so, <laughs> yep. Yeah, I was going to say he was he was he was a smart man. So so so, so. so, so twice in one night, uh, GNR members were slammed by Nirvana members. And then Nirvana pretty much slammed their career in the long term. Thank you.
Okay, we're back. And now, like every episode, we end with our albums or lost classic albums from the vault. I'll do mine. Chris will do his. And mine is, well, fittingly, an album from the 1990s. This is an album that could have easily made our list of one and dunners from the last episode. Instead, I am giving it the lofty position of lost classic from the vault. And this is none other than British band Elastica and their self-titled debut album from 1995. Now, when people think of the Britpop boom of the 1990s that saw Oasis, Blur, Pulp, and a pre-OK computer Radiohead launch to prominence, uh, this Elastica album is the Britpop album that gets unfortunately lost in the shuffle of reminiscence and deserves way, way more recognition than it gets. Now, while several bands at the time had female frontwomen, not many popular bands were all female or even mostly female. With Justine Frischman on lead vocals and rhythm guitar, Donna Matthews on lead guitar, and Annie Holland on bass, um, drummer Justin Welch being the lone male member, Elastica were all about real girl power at least in the UK pop scene, before the Spice Girls came along and made it a trite catchphrase. Now, of course, in the US, the, the, the Riot Girl movement was going on with Bikini Kill and you know the bands that would eventually morph into Slater Kinney, but they weren't really on the pop scene. They were very much in the underground. You know, like bands that were, and even Luscious Jackson were still kind of an underground band at this point. So uh, Elastica really were pretty unique at the time. Uh, combining adrenalized, spiky punk rock, irresistible new wave pop hooks, and the sexy, attitude-drenched, take-no-bullshit charisma of frontwoman Frischman, Elastica were right on the heels of Oasis and Blur in the Britpop sweepstakes in 1994, with both singles Line Up and Connection hitting the top 20 of the UK singles charts. When their self-titled debut album finally came out in March 1995, it went straight to number one on the UK album charts, at the time being the second fastest-selling British debut album ever after Oasis is Definitely Maybe. The band even made inroads in the US with Connection, hitting number two on the modern rock charts and number 53 on the Billboard Hot 100. Supercharged rocker Stutter also came in at number 67 on the same chart. The members of Elastica weren't the only ones reaping the rewards of their success. Legendary British post-punk band Wire, whom Elastica members have always claimed to be a primary influence, made quite a bit of money from off-court settlements with the band due to Elastica plagiarizing the chorus melody of Lineup from Wire's I Am The Fly and the guitar riff to Connection clearly being stolen from Wire's Three Girl Rumba. <laughs> Alas, not all bands are cut out for the rock and roll lifestyle of endless touring and incessant drug use. Bassist Holland quit the band in the summer of 95 due to exhaustion, and the band continued touring until mid-1996. They started recording sessions for the follow-up album in late 96, only to see internal band conflict and disagreements lead to their temporary breakup. 
Frischman reconvened a new lineup of the band, with drummer Welch being the only other original member left, in early 1999 to record a new batch of songs with electronica textures that brought out the new wave tendencies of the first album to the forefront. The resulting record was called The Menace, and while it would have been an eagerly anticipated release had it come out in 1997, coming out in April 2000 meant the album had lukewarm reviews and even less enthusiastic sales. All of this is a shame, of course, since the album is actually quite good. Its fractured, angular art pop and electronic undertones is a natural progression from the hyper-sleek pop-punk of the classic debut album. Unfortunately, Justine Frischman herself didn't rate the album very much, maintaining in a 2013 interview that Elastica should have been a quote-unquote one-album project. The band soon permanently disbanded in 2001. Nevertheless, we'll always have Elastica's incredible debut album to hold us over if we're ever jonesing for immaculately crafted sexy punk rock with an art-damaged bent. Okay, so for this week, um, and uh, this is, uh, you may get a couple of instances of this uh, moving forward, but this is related. I uh, This is the first episode we've recorded since I got married. Uh, just got back from a lovely honeymoon in the Smoky Mountains, but I did a lot of research on first dance songs. And in the midst of this, when I was looking at all these blog articles from wedding sites and looking at uh, you know, alternative rock fan sites or whatever, uh, one name that kept coming up that surprised me uh, was Band of Horses, No One's Gonna Love You, uh, which I hadn't really I hadn't really explored Band of Horses in a long time. Uh, Band of Horses is one of those rock bands that is pretty much faded now uh, into obscurity or is kind of a lost uh, band that really doesn't deserve uh, to be in that pile because they were really, really good. Uh, they, um, I think you know, a close corollary, you know, when you read about them, there's name droppings of, of uh, Neil Young in some of their stuff. They also, uh, the lead singer or the leader of the band is a guy named Ben Bridwell, who's very bright. Uh, very good musician, wonderful songwriter, and uh, incredible uh, singer. Uh, and he starts in Seattle. He's in Seattle when this band launches. Uh, he's originally from South Carolina. And, uh, you know, Bridwell is kind of like one of these modern Ian Anderson types who uh, he is forever having a revolving door with his other musicians, but he's the guy. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, he, again, I think deserves more credit for what he did in, especially in the late, uh, from like basically 2005 through 2011. Um, so in the midst of this, he, he puts out this album once he moved back to South Carolina and decided he was tired of Seattle and to go back and uh, be in the Southern confines, he puts out this album in 2007 called cease to begin. And it's basically perfect. It's 10 songs. It's 35 minutes. It's, uh, it's got uh, country influences. It's got uh, uh, classic rock influences. It's got folk influences. And it's got this really, uh, it's very musically inclined. It's very soulful. Uh, it's um, really creative in its arrangements and uses of guitar uh, as uh, sort of the melodic lines. I mean, it's, Almost in some spots, it's lead guitar is rhythm parts. 
And especially, like I mentioned, No One's Going to Love You, uh, one of the great love songs, certainly of the last 20 years, uh, and one of the most ambiguous love songs I think ever written, because it could be seen as a marriage song and it can be seen as a divorce song, because the structure is up, up, down, down, up, down, and it ends on the down. And so you're wondering uh, what's going on. This uh uh, there's uh, two uh, invocations of this lyric uh, that the woman is the ever-living ghost of what, of what once was. And in one context, it's the, you know, we're married now, you can put the past behind and we have the rest of our lives. The second context, it's the ever-listing lasting ghost of what was, which was our harmony during the relationship. And so you're never really sure where exactly it is. It could be the story of a marriage. It could be the story of a divorce because there's ups and downs in, in both of those. So uh, brilliantly ambiguous song, wonderful uh, playing. Uh, there's also a few other uh, notes in there. Clearly, Bridwell must have been going through some marital issues there because he uh, also has a song on there. I think the second best song on it is called Marry Me, which is this really slow burning, uh, Wurlitzer driven waltz uh, type song. Uh, he's got a goofy named song, which is actually wonderfully sincere called Detlef Shrimp, uh, which I guess he must've been buddies with Detlef because he was the sixth man on the Sonics, uh, for a while and made his home in the Northwest. Uh, and then, uh, he's got uh, a few other, like, again, it's just this really solid 10 song, uh, cycle. Now, uh, one thing to mention, too, is that I think a common comparison and the most common comparison you'll find out there is with my morning jacket. And there's some merit to that because yeah. you you feature uh, singers that use the same kind of echoey, uh, reverby, um, fill a room uh, kind of effect in their vocals. They're uh, covering the same territory. Uh, Bridwell and Jim James are both fans of these melodic, uh, sweet uh, lead lines. Uh, but here's here's and, the difference. And they're both, you know, symbolic children of Neil Young. <laughs> yes, yeah, they are symbolic ch- children of Neil Young. Uh, of Neil Young. Uh, here's the difference, though. Uh, Jim James needed a grain silo uh, in his hometown of Louisville to get his reverb effect that made him famous in at dawn and, uh, uh, it still moves. Uh, then Bridwell can actually do that, uh, in, in filling a room and, and having that range and having that, that power. Uh, if you want proof of that, uh, do a YouTube search for, uh, a live set they did for KEXP back when they were, um, promoting a record in 2014. Uh, and, you know, it features Laredo, which is their most famous song, uh, which is a great pop song, by the way, but very Neil Youngish. Uh, but he does a version, acoustic version of No One's Gonna Love You. And absolutely, it's the same effect. He's standing like four feet from the mic and still gets the same effect. So uh, huge talent. Uh, you know, unfortunately, they fell off. I think a part of it was uh, that that kind of rock that uh, was was a radio staple for the more indie rock records kind of faded away. Um, between 2010 and 2013, uh, and obviously all of the um, the personnel changes and Ben Bridwell growing up, and they haven't put out a record since 2017. So, but definitely go check out Band of Horses Cease to Begin. Uh, of that uh, post grunge, uh, Neil Young uh, 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 
reverent uh, record with reverb vocals, uh, that may be the shining or that may be the best uh, of those records of the era. Well, not better than My Morning Jackets at Dawn. Uh, it's close. It, I think it's it's neck and neck. Mm-hmm. Well, I really believe that. Yeah. They're in We Now Leave the Vault Behind, and that is the end of episode 10. Uh, it was fun to bag on the anti-Nirvanas. It was a way of us uh, celebrating Nirvana without actually talking too much about Nirvana. Maybe we should dedicate an actual album to Nirvana down the road. But uh, be that as it may, uh, we're happy uh, with this discussion. Lots of food for thought. Uh, as we do at the end of every episode, uh, we give you a chance to chime in uh, with your own thoughts. If you disagree with us, if you agree with us, if you want to hear uh, more stuff, you know, you've been hearing in the first third of our uh, episodes that we are uh, curating thoughts on Michael Jackson versus Prince. Uh, this is a miniseries, uh, a curmudgeon rock miniseries that is upcoming, and we want to hear your thoughts. So curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, we're at on Twitter at curmudgeon uh, pod uh, at curmudgeon pod. Uh, and so uh, find us on either of, of those spots. Uh, I occasionally uh, post in a uh, Facebook group called podcast ha- uh, hackers. So you can find us there as well. So uh, that said, any final thoughts? Arthur? Yeah, just uh, this episode, we talked about um, the rock revolution or the music revolution that Nirvana kickstarted uh, next episode. We're going to talk about another kind of music revolution that is going on right now. And it's one that we really don't understand. And uh, But we're going to have a guest on of, to help explain it to us. And this has to do with the ubiquitous genre now known as K-pop. <laughs> the curmudgeon rock report will keep on rocking if you do. Catch us where you catch all the podcasts. We know you love rock and roll as much as we do. Support us with donations at patreon.com slash curmudgeonrock. Find show notes and more on our Medium site. Join us next time as rock nerds smack you with knowledge. Stay rude, stay crude, stay sophisticated. Thank you for listening.